Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Now, we are, as a species, really focused on what's happening on land. Perhaps that's because we don't live in the ocean. It's often said that we only have explored 5% of the Blue Wonder. But even beyond that, most people have only a very basic understanding of the engine of our Earth and how crucial our water is to everything on it. Well, Dr. Helen Chersky is trying to change that with her new book. It's called Blue Machine. She joins me now. Uh, Helen, what is your fascination with, with the oceans? Where did this book start? Well, the book started when I discovered the ocean by accident, actually really 15 years ago. But I, you know, I kind of, I was that kid who read all my science books and I did degrees in science and all of that. And then somewhere around the age of 26, somebody, I I accidentally ended up working at an oceanography institution. It was quite accidental. And then I sort of realized how big and important the ocean is. Um, And and I was really indignant that no one had ever told me. And it's something that we are, you know, as you said, we are very good at thinking about land and we talk about living on a blue planet, but we don't ever talk about that blue. And when we do, we talk about the pollution and the dolphins and the fish. We don't actually talk about the water itself. And so it's sort of um, really the reason for writing the book was it drives me nuts. (laughs) It's really hard. You know, I work in the world of ocean science. I study the physics of the ocean surface and um, nobody talks about the ocean itself. And it got to that point and it was like, right, well, it's going to have to be me. So we went. So um, people probably understand that there are currents, right? And that currents are the movements of water. Um, But I have to say, I'm guilty of this myself. I don't know much more beyond that. And you describe the the the, the oceans as, as the engine of our planet. What does that mean? So, well, the first thing is they are the defining feature of planet Earth, right? If you look at the Earth and you don't know anything, especially if you look at the side of the Pacific, there's a lot of blue. And the water is not just sitting there. It's not just some big empty blue pond. Um, it's not the water itself is moving in response to the energy that's flowing in and out of it and the wind pushing on it and things like that but it also carries things uh, it carries heat for example o- the ocean is an extraordinary extraordinarily good uh, sort of heat battery if you like when heat gets into it, it gets carried around uh, and so it stores heat and that means that it can kind of act as a buffer for the planet so it takes it in when there's lots of energy when the sun's shining and gives it back on the gray days um but this, this, so the ocean is kind of moving. It's not just storing uh, heat and storing nutrients and things like that. It's moving them all around, and so there is there are lots. Of, the thing about the ocean is that it, it happens on lots of scales. So there are really big, slow parts to this engine that you know people talk about uh, the thermohaline circulation, which is really slow uh, sinking of water close to the poles, and then it slithers along the bottom of the ocean over hundreds of years and eventually pops up somewhere else. So that's some huge part of the engine that takes things away from the surface for a while, and then sometime later they come up and back. That is an enormous process, right? And we're talking about an, like an unfathomable amount of water that goes through this uh, long journey from the poles and, and around, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost, so there is this sort of slow overturning of the ocean and the water will all, probably all go down at some point and stay down for a few hundred years and come back up somewhere else. So it's all of it. I mean, the whole ocean is kind of churning very, very slowly. And we can actually see it happening because of the, um, because of the CFCs that humans put into the atmosphere. You know, one of those sort of pollutants that we didn't think was a pollutant at the time. Um, it's, it's one of the problems with CFCs is that they last, they're inert. And so when they sit in ocean water, they just kind of sit there. 
And because we only really started emitting them at a fixed point in time, we can actually see where they've got to. So they've gone down, they've been taken into the water at the surface and they've gone down into the deep. And we can actually see how far south along the North Atlantic they've gone. So we can actually see this happening. It's not just ocean, you know, these are currents that maybe are um, a centimetre per second. They're really, really slow. So that's perhaps, you know, a mile or so a day. Um, but they, th- this, this water is creeping south and we can mm. see it. So it's not a kind of invented oceanography thing. We can actually see it happening. Uh, and yes, it's, it's the whole ocean is overturning. So that's the biggest uh, part of the ocean engine. And then you get to smaller things like currents and these big circular currents that um, sort of surround, you know, we talk about the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream is actually only a part of a circular current that goes around the North Atlantic, that goes up the coast of America and across to us. And then it gets wider and broader and slower and it kind of comes around the other side and then back just north of the equator. So there's this big circle, basically, uh, in that ocean basin, and it's carrying things around. But that that um, that, that current is that um, is that all on the surface, or just below the surface, or does that go up and down as well, depending on on, on heat and so on? Because you, you sort of, when you look at it on maps, it looks like a very surface thing. Right. So the ocean, uh, the ocean has layers and the layers are very important. And mostly it's got a kind of lid, basically a nice warm lid and then colder water that's deep underneath. And so the giant, those big currents that like the Gulf Stream um, is probably a hundred or so meters thick. So it's not really, really thick. Uh, There are other currents that can go a little bit deeper. But yes, they're right at the surface. So so the really slow stuff is happening down below. So the slow part of the engine. And then the closer you get to the surface, the faster it gets. So then those Hmm. gyres are traveling, you know, a few meters per second, for example, going round and round. And then you get to the wind pushing on the surface and that's pushing up all these little swirls, these little, almost like little whirlpools that are moving around the ocean surface. And the point about all of this is not just that it's happening, it's that thing it influences other stuff you know we humans think that oh we decided to go across the ocean but actually if you look back at history a lot of the times we went where the ocean let us go so the places that we colonized the places that we traded with the places that we fought battles they were dictated by where the ocean took us so we're just <laughs> little you know we kind of sit on top of all of this but really what we experience is is just kind of the surface of this big churning underneath my son is doing a project for school on earthquakes and um, he read out this fact and I said, where did you get that? And it was about tsunamis traveling up to 500 miles an hour. And and, and I was like, what? Uh, I had no idea that, you know, that, that water could move that quickly. And, and so there, there's so much about this engine that you talk about that we really, we, we many of us don't know even basic stuff. Um, is that because we haven't studied it for long and we think about, you know, oceanography? That's a fairly new science, is it? Well, it isn't. That's the thing. We're just very good at not seeing it. <laughs> so the the um, the expedition that is sometimes seen as the start of, of modern oceanography, global oceanography, took place, was actually going on 150 years ago. So from 1872 to 1876, a ship called the Challenger uh, it left from England and it and it went all the way around the world. So, so there have been other expeditions studying the ocean a little bit, but this was the first one that went all the way around the world for four years, just kind of measuring bits. So oceanography has been around for a long time. And there's a couple of things that make it really hard for us to see the ocean. One is the physics of the ocean itself. So we look up into the sky and we can all look up into the sky, you know, if we're uh, sighted and, and we can see stars. We can see the stuff out there. And basically we can see for thousands of light years, right? Millions of light years. We can look out and we can see the stuff there. 
but light gets absorbed by the oceans very, very quickly. So what we can't do is get like a special pair of binoculars. And this is a thing I would love to invent. Some kind of, it's physically impossible, some kind of special pair of binoculars that lets you look down into the ocean and see the different layers and see what's moving where um, and see that, you know, every night at dusk, there's this enormous plume of what are called zooplankton, so little creatures. And they erupt, they rise up from the depths and they come to the surface and at sunset, they sink back down, right? It's the biggest migration on earth and it's vertical happens in a sort of wave going around the planet we can't see it because the physics of the ocean hides it from us because the light the role that light plays up here on land which is the thing that lets you see long distances in the ocean it's sound that does that so because we're visual creatures we are kind of blind in the ocean right we don't listen in the way that you know sound doesn't get out of the ocean but even if it did we wouldn't be able to interpret the soundscapes the messages that are down there so so it's it's partly an accident of physics that it's just that it's we can't see the ocean in the way that we visualize the world and partly it's that we're just extremely self-centered frankly <laughs> you know <laughs> humans kind of look at the world and go oh how what can that do for me well do you and know, <laughs> I, I, I had never considered the fact that zooplankton may be just passengers. Is that what you is 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 that the relationship? Have they just evolved to ride this elevator that's already there? Because I, I thought it was a mechanical motion that the zooplankton um, went up and and came back down. The zooplankton do paddle themselves. So okay. the so that so I split. The, the second half of the book is split into messengers, passengers, and voyagers. And so the zooplankton are kind of a mixture, actually, of a passenger and a voyager, because mostly they are just carried around where things go, but they can move themselves up and down. Right. So they actually, they've got little sort of paddle-like legs, and what they start paddling, and that will move them up in the water column. They don't really go sideways. So they're mostly just going up and down, uh, and that that is mechanical. Um, but then they're being carried sideways by the currents and getting sort of mixed in. So it's a bit of a combination of both, you know, that they're sort of they're active sometimes and they're passive the rest of the time. When we think about what's happening in the world at the moment with climate change, you know, obviously things that happen on land are very easily documented. The 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 lack of fish in our oceans are probably it's probably less easy to document, although easier. What about the changes in currents, the changes in temperature? What is happening with these enormous systems and processes under the surface of the ocean? Do we understand what climate change is doing to them? Or, or is that a, a more difficult thing to, to measure because of the size, the nature and, and, and the rate of change? We can measure it and we can see it. I mean, we're still picking apart all the de all the nuanced details. So the way it works is that, you know, an engine is basically something that turns energy in some form into motion. So the, the ocean is an engine because it takes in sunlight. Um, it's 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 um, the energy source of the ocean is from the top, right? So the energy comes in at the top and sort of moves downwards. And um, so that engine is powered by sunlight. And what climate change is doing is increasing the amount of energy in the Earth system, but 93% of that is ending up in the ocean. So basically the ocean engine is getting this huge dump of extra energy um, slightly different in different places, but it's a lot of energy, mostly near the surface. Um, and so the engine is kind of changing shape because of that. And and it's got and that's that's separate to the chemical effects that the extra carbon dioxide in the atmosphere will dissolve into the upper, you know, the surface layers of the ocean. And it has so that's where you get ocean acidification from, for example. So there is a whole set of sort of um, chemistry effects associated with that. Um, but when it comes to the ocean engine, then yes. So the places that and it, it, there's a couple of things that happen. So 
Melting of glaciers, for example, injects fresh water in places where there wasn't fresh water before. And the ocean engine is partly run by density. So things find their level according to their density. So fresh water is uh, less dense than salt water, so it sits at the top, but it changes the, the ocean engine in the places where it where it turns up. The other big thing that's happening, I mean, there's a long list. I shan't go through all of them. One of the other big things is that... Um, so the, the the ocean is what we call stratified. It's in these layers. And in most of the global ocean, those layers are determined by temperature. So the warmer water is at the top and then it gets cooler as you go down. Now, in order for the, the ocean not to be dead, you need some mixing between, you need some stuff from the bottom to come up to the top. Yeah. But if your ocean layer, if your top layer is really, really, really warm, um, much warmer than what's below, it's much harder to mix them up. Um, right. And so it's harder for nutrients to come up from below. So there's a physical consequence of that extra energy. That even though there's more energy and it's sitting at the top and you think, well, it's not doing anything, it's actually because it's there as heat. It's preventing the ocean mixing up quite as much. So things like that are happening. So so the energy is the power that, that runs it. The energy is what runs the whole thing, right? So if you change the distribution of the energy, the engine runs differently. And then that has consequences that we can see and that animals can see you know, as they're going around the ocean trying to live. The book has lots of uh, really interesting anecdotes and it's really poetically written. But I wanted to know, is there a story that really stuck out to you that illustrates the the dynamics of the ocean and how it's affecting life on Earth? My The favourite story, the one that everyone remembers, is the whale earwax, because most people don't think that whales have earwax because they don't have visible ears. Um, and whales evolved from land mammals, so they, they used to have ears pretty much like ours. As they went into the water, they lost the outer part. They changed their hearing slightly, but that little tube that joins the inner ear with the outer ear, the whales kept that, and it kept accumulating earwax. And because the outer part of the ear was kind of covered over. The, the earwax has got nowhere to go. So basically inside every whale, there's two little tubes, one on each side, and they're just building up earwax, um, which is great for scientists because they get these, they're kind of like tree rings, right? They, 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 um, they have layers in order of the whale's life. So you can go back and see what the whale was doing at any point in its life. And then two museums uh, in the UK and America worked out that they had historical whale earwax going back a long, long time. So they could piece together a 150 year um, timeline of whales from their earwax globally. And the, what they chose to measure was stress hormones. And so um, you can see that when there's lots of whaling, when people are killing lots of whales in the ocean, the whale stress goes up globally. And then when they, the whaling stops, it goes back down. And there's two exceptions to that. One is during the Second World War when there was lots of noise in the ocean. The whales got stressed because there's all these ships being bombed and torpedoes and things. And the other one is that as time is going on in the past, past two decades, we're starting to see that whales are getting more stressed in general, not because mm. anyone's killing them, but because we're changing the ocean. We're changing their environment and where their food is and what the temperature is and it's stressing them out and you can see it in their earwax well it's a sad story we don't want to finish on the sad story Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> well the great thing is the whale i mean there's lots of other stories in the earwax but you know the, actually one of the positive things that came out of it is that i asked i was asking this guy well why is it globally the same everywhere you know this message and he said well you know it's possible that the whales are communicating with each other and that might help them deal with these things because they're communicating so you know maybe that's a positive side to that story <laughs> yeah well I, i'm not entirely convinced that that is less depressing that these whales may now be cancelling each other because of the stress they're feeling but you know what i'll take it um the book is fantastic it's called blue machine it's by the brilliant helen chersky helen thank you so much for your time thank you very much 
Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.